Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Let's pray. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. My heart's desire, Lord, is that every person in this room would be able to say that from the bottom of their heart. You're our treasure. You're our inheritance. You're our hope. When everybody is growing, weak, and dying, the whole creation groans, and we groan. And all around our soul gives way. Then you are all our hope and stay. So now come. And build yourself under our lives as the foundation. When everything is falling apart. And the whole world seems to come apart at the seams. And we're struck in our bodies and struck in our minds and struck in our marriages and struck in our children and struck in our jobs. Make us strong, O oh God. Don't let us throw away hope. Don't let us throw away our confession when the going gets rough. Rather, send us down deeper into grace. And use this message, I pray, to that end. For this, your people, through Christ, I pray. Amen. Last week, we focused on verse 17 of chapter 8 on the inheritance. Let me review very briefly. I said, and it is still true this week and will be true forever, that if you have trusted or will trust right now, in Jesus Christ and receive Him as Lord and Savior and treasure of your lives, God will say to you, I give you the right to become the child of God. 
John 1.12. And then Paul adds, And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if we suffer with Him, in order that we might be glorified with Him. And I said the inheritance has these three parts to it, at least. One, you will inherit the earth. Two, you will inherit God as your God and enjoy Him forever and ever. And three, you will inherit a glorified mind and body and emotions. And that third one is not a third one, but a foundation for the first two. Because if you were to be given the whole world, the new heavens and the new earth for your enjoyment... And if you were to be given God Himself for your fellowship forever and ever, and you were to be left the way you are right now in your mind and body and emotions, He would get a perfectly pitiful response. And your joy would be a little tiny fraction of what it is designed to be in the age to come when you are given your inheritance. In other words, glorification... That big word at the end of verse 17. Glorification means I've got to have some glorious capacities in order to enjoy glory. You leave me to the way I am right now and present me with infinitely satisfying beauty. I will say, wow, that's nice. Or some other unpoetic response. And that will not be fitting for the God of the universe. I've got to have a glorified mind and a glorified emotions and a glorified body to rise to the occasion of this inheritance. And then we saw at the end of the message that sober word in verse 17. If we suffer with him. You will not get the inheritance if you run from the suffering that you're called upon to bear on the way to heaven. So today, we move to verse 18 following, and the point is this. It's worth it. It's worth it. That's it. Verse 18. Let's read it. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, Paul's saying, yes, verse 17 is true. I wrote it. And you must suffer in order to have this glory. But it's worth it. That's what verse 18 says. It's worth it. These sufferings are not to be compared to the payoff that is coming. Everything in this paragraph from 18 to 25, I think, is written to help you endure suffering. I hope that you can say verse 18 from the bottom of your heart and not just from the top of your head. I hope that you don't echo verse 18 just because it's in the Bible and say, 
Well, yeah, it's in the Bible that the sufferings of this age are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed. I believe that in my head because if you don't have it deeper in your heart than that, when it comes, that won't carry the day. When your time comes, when your suffering comes, if you don't have it deeper The groanings, the miseries, the corruptions, the futility of this world is going to do you in. So please listen carefully now. There's a lot of people, some in this room, I'm sure, who have tasted enough of suffering to be tempted to say, if that's the payoff for being a child of God, I'm out of here. You expected more. It was supposed to get better. When you believed. This paragraph is in the Bible so that you won't say that. It's in the Bible to help you get ready to suffer. Because if you haven't suffered much, and many in this room haven't suffered much, some have much. But you will. You will. You must. And this paragraph is in the Bible as a mercy to you to help you get ready so that when it comes, you won't say, I'm out of here. If that's the way the children get treated, then I'm just finished with it all. I find another father. I find another treasure that treats me better. This paragraph is here to help you not do that. And my prayer is that you will not do that. And if you're an unbeliever in the room... And I'm sure there are some who've come in and you wonder, whoa, what's all this going on here? This singing that they do, that looks, whew, I'm, that's not where I am, you know. I've got a prayer for you too. And it's simply this, that as I unfold this portion of God's Word, and we do believe it is God's Word, and my prayer will be that as I unfold this week and next week, this paragraph, God himself will authenticate this vision of reality to your own soul and it will click. It will say, yes, that's the way the world is. Yes, that's my only hope. Yes, that is true and real. Yes, I will give myself to that. That's my prayer for unbelievers in the room. The way Paul goes about encouraging and helping and strengthening us in the face of suffering is very remarkable. I've divided it into two messages. This week, we're going to focus on this truth. Paul puts your suffering in a global context. And next week, we look at six statements of hope. In this text. Now, I divide them like this because I really believe there are two kinds of helps and strengthenings in this text. One is the absolute, sober, deadly realism of the text. And the other is the spectacular, unspeakable hope in spite of the realism of the text. And I think it helps to be realistic. This is a hard message today. This is a tough, 
heavy, weighty, discouraging message. If you've got a pie in the sky. No, no, that's not the right word. If you've got a over-realized eschatology. And that didn't help anybody, probably. (laughs) That is, if you thought that believing was going to get heaven now. Get all my sickness fixed. Get all my marriage problems fixed. Get all my kids fixed. Get all my job fixed. Get all my mind fixed now. I believe I'm a child of God. Where is it? Come on, inheritance. This is a very, very sobering text. It isn't going to happen that way. So today we do the sober thing, and next Sunday we fly. Okay. Here's the way he goes about it. He puts our suffering into a global context. And I'm aware that if you're suffering this morning, it may be that in seeking help in this service, it didn't enter your mind that what you really wanted was for me to put your suffering in a global context. You didn't come think, whoa, that's what I really need. I really need to feel my suffering in a global context. Well, you're not here to instruct God what you need. God's here to instruct you what you need. And you don't know what you need. The Bible is written to tell you what you need. When I come to this paragraph... And I find myself somewhat alienated from this truth. I say, what's wrong with me? Not what's wrong with the Bible. I try to bring my felt needs underneath my real needs so that I can get real help, not artificial help. And one of our real needs, evidently, is to know something about the connection with my pain and the globe. The universe. So... Even if you don't feel like this is what you need, give him a chance. Give God a chance to talk to you here about what you need. All right? Let's try this. He does it in three ways. He he puts your suffering in a global context in three ways. Number one, he says, all creation is groaning. Verse 22 For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So here we have, notice the phrase, whole creation. The whole creation groans, which means right off the bat, don't feel picked on. Don't feel isolated. You are part of a creation and the whole thing is groaning. Second way he does it, the second way he expresses this all creation is in verse 21. The creation itself, there it is, the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption. In other words, the whole creation is in bondage. The whole universe is a slave of the second law of thermodynamics and lots of other stuff. Corruption. Corruption. 
perishing, ruin, disorder, futility, pain, suffering. The whole creation is in slavery to this. Don't feel picked on. Got a bad knee? Got a bad brain? Got a dying spouse? Please, what this text is designed to do is take away from you a burden you don't have to carry. Namely, what's wrong with me? Why me? It's the why me question that's being removed by this text. Thirdly, verse 20, he says it again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The creation was subjected to futility. The whole creation is in the grip of futility, emptiness, hollowness, frustration, breaking down. Malfunction, earthquakes, famine, and other birth pangs. That's the first way he puts it in global context. All of nature, all of creation is groaning. Secondly, all of history, not just this moment in your life or in your family or in this church, or in our nation, not just this moment, but the whole history. So I'm taking now, I'm moving from a spatial statement of all creation is subject to futility to all of history. There's not a season in your life, not a season in this world's history that is not groaning. Look at these Time words in verse 18 and 20 and 21. Start at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time. That's a very long time. This present history is shot through with sufferings. It is to be expected that if you live in this age, you suffer, you groan, you experience futility, corruption. Verse 20, notice the past tense and then the future of 21. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. It had a beginning. Verse 21, the creation will be set free. It'll have an end. It's temporary. Next Sunday, the end is coming. But for now, where do we live? Right here. Between the subjection to futility and the lifting of the bondage. We live in it. Our bodies are a part of it. This is, this is part of it. You all look like a big smudge to me right now. That's futility. And I'm thankful for common grace. And then it will be the ears. Noelle keeps telling me she's talking loud enough. No, you're not. This is not my problem. I'm not there yet. This is your problem. Speak up. 
coming. It comes to your knees, it comes to your elbows, it comes to your back, your brain, your liver, your prostate. But it's not going to last. So all of history, well, not quite. That's an overstatement. All of history. Because there was a little season. There was a little season of history when it wasn't so. This is the third way that God puts this in the global perspective and it's the most important so if you've if you've tuned out until now please tune back in this is the most important point first i said all of creation is groaning then i said all of history is included i'm qualifying the all now and i'm saying a third thing namely it had a beginning and the beginning was a Judicial decree from God, not a natural development of material consequence. In other words, when this creation came into futility, God put it there as a penal judicial Decree in response to sin. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. The earth didn't ask to be cursed. Adam didn't ask to be cursed. Eve didn't ask to be cursed. The snake didn't ask to be cursed. The seas and the clouds didn't ask to be cursed. This creation did not ask to be subjected to futility and chaos and ruin and corruption and groaning. No, no. It was against the will of the creation. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That's God. And you may say, whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe it's Adam. Maybe Adam and Eve, when they ate the forbidden fruit and came with the whole creation into death. Maybe maybe that's who it means here. Or somebody might say, maybe it's the devil. The devil subjected this world to corruption because he tempted Adam and Eve to break the law and to eat and to bring the whole creation crashing down into futility. Maybe it's the devil. Well, neither of those will work because it says at the end of the verse, That this one who subjected the creation to futility did so in hope. Adam had no design for the revelation of the children of God in eating that fruit. 
The devil had no design for the magnificent display of the glory of the children of God in tempting Adam and Eve. Neither of those subjected the creation to futility in hope. Only one being brings a judicial sentence upon the whole creation, guilty and sentenced to corruption and futility and groaning in hope, namely God. God has hope at the other end of this history. This creation and all of its fallenness will be set free from its bondage to decay. Only God can do that. And that's the hope in which it was subjected. The implications of this are staggering. Talk about a world view, a vision of the totality of creation and reality and how to understand the world we look out upon today in the 21st century with its massive agony. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in Hope. It wasn't a natural phenomenon. It was a judicial decree. When this creation fell, I am amazed at how many Christians are so eager to remove God from the equation of suffering, that they are willing to become deists to do it. Remember the deists? The deists believe that God exists and that He created the world the way you create a clock and you wind it up and you put the springs in there and you set it off and you retreat and you don't get involved with that world. It just runs on its own little wheels and wiggles and everything that in it is explainable from within the system. How many Christians there are who are so fearful that we might lay at the feet of the sovereign judicial decree of God the miseries of the world, they become deists to rescue him from that responsibility. You can't have it and have verse 20. Why is the world groaning in agony today? Answer, he subjected it to futility in hope. There is no comfort among the saints of God, among deists. A distant, disinterested, watching God is not a comfort to the suffering. The implications are huge to what we're saying here. Let me give you a few of them. The meaning of all misery in the world is that sin is horrific. The meaning of all misery in the world is that sin is horrific. All natural evil is a statement about 
the horror of moral evil. All natural evil in the world is a statement about the horror of moral evil. If you see a suffering in the world that is unspeakably horrible, let it make you shudder at how unspeakably horrible sin is and how unspeakably holy God is which sin falls short of. The meaning of futility, the meaning of corruption, the meaning of groaning is that sin is ghastly. Sin is hideous. Sin is repulsive. Sin is outrageous beyond imagination. You see, if you come to look at the world that we live in without a massive vision of the holiness of God and His infinitely high desert of worship and an attendant deep sense of the horror and the outrage and the ghastliness and the hideousness of sin, if you don't come to this world with those two visions you will say, this is an overreaction. This is an overreaction, God. Just thank you anyway, but this is an overreaction. you got no other choice. And so I'm just pleading, get a massive vision of the holiness of God and a deep Horrible, 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 ghastly, hideous vision of what sin is. There's no other way to explain the futility of the world and believe in God. He subjected the world to futility in hope. Well... Let me sum it up here and draw it to conclusion by relating it to your suffering. I've seen three ways in this text that God connects your suffering to global context. One, he says that all the suffering in the world, all the futility, the corruption, the groaning, is by virtue of a divine judicial decree which we saw in chapter 5, verse 12. By one man, sin entered into the world, and through sin, death. Not because it was a natural consequence, but a judicial appointment and decree. Eat this, you die. God did that. Death is God's decree upon a world shut through with sin. We also saw it in chapter 1, by the way. He handed them over, handed them over, handed them over. Three times in chapter 1, handed them over to a base mind. Hand them over to corruption. The corruption we see in the world is the judicial handing over of God. The second thing we saw is that all of history is involved. There never is a time in your life 
And never is a time in history that does not groan. All creation will be set free. But now, no. Number three, we saw that the whole creation is groaning. Judicial decree, all of history, all of creation are the three ways that Paul puts your suffering in a global context. Now, let's end by looking at verse 23. This is you, Christian. Be sober. Take heart. Be realistic. Verse 23. Not only this, that is, not only does the whole creation groan, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, Grown within ourselves. I'm going to stop there. The rest of the verse is full of hope. But let's let the sober realism minister to us here. Do you realize? I mean, focus with me on verse 23 and feel what he's saying. Feel it because he is saying something very particular to the children of God. This text is about children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, if we suffer, if we suffer, if we suffer, we will be glorified with Him. This text is for the children. And do you realize what this text is saying? The children are saying in Rome, not us. Surely we're not included. Surely the children get a reprieve. Surely cancer doesn't hit us. Surely depression doesn't hit us. Surely marital problems don't hit us? Surely eating disorders don't hit us? Surely arthritis and bum knees don't hit us? Not the children. Now, look at it. Notice, I think at least five ways he tries to say, even the children, even the children, even the children, even the children, because he's saying, not only that, but we, number one, Ourselves, number two, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, number three. In other words, we're saved. We're saved. We got the down payment of the inheritance inside. Surely there's a reprieve. Surely there's a relief. Surely there's some escape for the children. And then he says it again. Even we, four, five, ourselves, six, grown. There's no escape. In this age, the escape is coming. This creation will be set free. Until then, you will die. And on your way to death, you'll get very sick. And relationships will be stressed to the limit. And you will have to watch some of your most precious ones suffer, which is harder than doing it yourself, probably. And my plea now, as we close, is that you won't throw it away. That when it comes, when your day comes, you won't say, if that's the way you treat your children, if that's the way you treat your children, I'm out of here. Don't do that. Please don't do that. Instead, let's do this together as a church. Let's come alongside each other. And while you're going through it, and I'm not going through it as much, let's strengthen each other. Let's keep pointing each other to next Sunday's sermon. Oh, I hope you can come back. 
Because there's six mighty statements of hope in this text. And all I've done is portray the realism of the text about this fallen world in which we live. And there are six glorious statements about hope that I want to talk about. So now, as we end, let's just take our stand on the solid rock. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. I love that hymn. So you're dismissed. Go stand on the rock until he comes.